So there we go. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Last week I was thinking bad thoughts about Justin and Chris and Zach because the mic wasn't working, and um, it was because I didn't turn it on. <laughs> and so that's a. Uh, <laughs> it hel- it helps when Why it's on. Why are you laughing? That's not right, dude. <laughs> Dang. It is. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. I greet you in the name of my Savior, and uh, I'm glad y'all are here with us. Um, sometimes we talk about things that are easier to grasp, easier to believe, easier to apply, and sometimes we take it up a notch. And today we're going to talk about something that it'll take the Spirit of God to help us see it and believe it and embrace it. And so I want to ask the Holy Spirit to do that. Dear Holy Spirit, I uh, acknowledge that unless you open our blind eyes and soften our selfish, hard hearts, this will bounce off of us um, like bullets off of a bulletproof vest. But you can um, turn dry bones into flesh and hard hearts into that which is soft and receptive. And so I pray that you would. And... uh, that this word from your, from your word would impact us in good ways. And I ask it in Christ's name, amen. amen. Um, those of you that come here on a regular basis, you know that I mean what I'm about to say. And that is that I believe that there are amazing life-changing truths that fill the Bible. I really believe that. I believe that these amazing, life-altering truths are just there for us to discover in our study of the, the specific words the verses, the chapters, the, the, the lives of personalities, the, 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 in the events of the narratives that fill the Bible. I believe that there are incredible truths in, uh, that we can discover in the details. That's what I'm trying to say. In the details of these different words, sentences, events, personalities. And therefore it is incredibly worthwhile, I would add mandatory, for us to be diligent to study the details. Oh, there's an old saying, Jerry, the, the devil's in the details. Um, I would add to that that God is in the details. God 
wrote the Bible in such a way that it is worthwhile and necessary to study the details that fill the Bible. If we're going to get from it all that God wants us to. But it's also at least equally important. It is also at least equally important that we not miss the big lessons, the big um, overarching truths and lessons that God wants us to see and that he wrote the Bible in such a way through 40 some odd people over a period of 1600 years. He wrote this book so that we could see these big things, these big lessons. He doesn't want us, he doesn't want us to use that as an excuse not to study the details. Right? But these big lessons are, are just glaring at us. They're shouting at us. And God doesn't want us to miss those things. And I think that it is easy both for those that don't read the Bible very much to miss these big lessons, big, big truths, as well as those of us who are, we're very passionate about studying the, 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 the finer details of, of, of uh, you know, the, of, of the Bible. And, and sometimes we miss these big lessons that, that God is trying to declare to us through His Word. Let me give you some examples. The book of Job. This past summer, or yeah, we're, we're in the fall. This past summer, uh, I read the book of Job again. And, uh, you know, it's a tough book. I don't know about you, but, but uh, that is not a book for the faint of heart or for the lazy. Uh, it is a, it's, a, it's a book you've got to work at. And it's filled with these unbelievable truths. Um, uh, the, the, the reality and the impact of suffering on people in our world. The sovereignty of God over the affairs of mankind. Um, the dynamic between the, the, the forces of good and the forces of, of evil that are beyond our eyes' ability to see. Um, the, um, the incredibly limited perspective and knowledge that you and I have to understand what's going on in another person's life. These are, these are just a few of the hundreds of important truths that we find in the, the careful, detailed study of the book of Job. But my question for us today, what is the book of Job as a book? What's it declaring? What's the, what's the meta-narrative, if you will, the overarching theme or, or truth that the book of Job is declaring. I'll give you another example. 
Um, this is not found in one book. This will be found in, in five books, actually. Um, but uh, uh, from Genesis to Joshua, I guess that's six books. Um, in those six books, we, you study the journey of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. Well, let's, you know, let's spend 25 years talking about the details, the truths that we can discover in the details of that journey. The truths related to God's, uh, the, Him fulfilling promises. The truths related to God's protection, God's provision, God's power. Um, displayed, you know, when he split the Red Sea and all these different things. Uh, the truths related to the, 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 the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments and the priesthood and the, and the tabernacle. I could go on and on and on. There's so many truths contained in the Bible's journey describing uh, the journey from, from Egypt to the Promised Land for Israel. But I, I want us to stop today and think about what, what's the big lesson? What's the, what's the big meta-narrative that God wants us? And when we think about that journey, what is the big lesson, the big truth that God wants us to, to get from that? I think it's easy at times to study the details, the specifics, and we miss, the, we miss the big story. We miss the big lesson, the big truth there. One last example, and then we'll move on. Um, the story of Jesus being invited with his disciples to go uh, to the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. And I was going to get you to read that for me, I if will. you would, spouse. Thank Might you. be on the, on oh, the yeah, screen. Oh, yeah, Colin's going to put it on the screen. John chapter 2, the first 11 verses. This is where Jesus' mom, this was probably a relative of Mary's, maybe her sister, her niece, well, it, wouldn't be her, well, it could be her sister, um, but it, more likely her niece or, a, or a, yeah, something like that, who's getting married and Mary has been invited to the wedding and Jesus, being a family member, has been invited and he brought his disciples with him. Okay, so would you read that for me? You probably remember this one. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus with, and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take some to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I find it very significant that this is the first... Jesus could have orchestrated his, his miracles, his signs, 
any way he wanted to. He was not forced to do it this way. But he very carefully picked this event to be the very first time that he, the, he says, or, the, or John says, where Jesus reveals his glory. First time. Could have, could have been any, any, any situation. But he chose this to be the first, which to me gives weight to it. And in this story, there's so many things that we could focus on. Uh, Jesus' relationship with Mary. Uh, that's a very unusual conversation they have and what Mary understood about her son and Jesus's how he saw his relationship with Mary um, um, Jesus's view of marriage and the fact that he chose marriage or a wedding to be such a significant part of this first miracle uh, big big theological deal there um, uh, uh, this was a very, we, we know this, you'll have to trust me on it, but scholars would know this. It, this was a very poor family. Very poor. And so the fact that Jesus chose to do something to rescue a, for, a, a poor family from embarrassment and cultural and social shame, um, that was the very first time that huge, huge Jesus' relationship with the poor, with his mom, uh, with, with marriage, the, the, the whole institution of marriage, Jesus' power over nature, over the elements. There's all these specific things that we could study, right? But again, I want to ask you, just like with uh, uh, Job and just like with the journey of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, what's the big lesson here? What's the big picture, the big story? What's God wanting us to see? And I want to suggest to you today, at least in this lesson, that I think that the, the overarching truth in John chapter 2, at least the first 11 verses, is the same truth that God wants us to see in Job. And it's the same lesson that God wants us to see in the journey of Israel from, the, from Egypt to the Promised Land. And that, we, we discover that truth by what the, the, the wedding, was the, the host, the wedding guy, the, the dude that was running the wedding, he said it. He said, you, Jesus, have said, well, he, he didn't say it to Jesus, but he, he said it, he didn't even realize, but it was Jesus, you have saved the best for last. And I just want us to think today about how significant that declaration is and what a truth that is that God saves His best for last. That that's not just something that Jesus did. That is a part of who God is. It's a part of his priority, his character. It's, it's the way he operates. It's the way he relates to us. And he hasn't changed a bit. It's the way he related to Job. 
It's the way he related to the Israelites. It's the way he related to Abraham. It's the way he related. If you just run through the Bible, and we will, what you see is the Bible declaring or presenting to us a God from the beginning to the very end, and we'll see that in a minute, a God who chooses to save the best for last. And as I said, I think there's this constant danger in our study of the scriptures and in just our living of life to forget that, to forget that God is always at work saving his best for last. In the midst of today's problems, and as I look out here at you, I don't know every one of you really well, but I know most of you very well. And in the midst of your and my problems and pains, our frustrations in our marriages and with our children, with our parents, our finances, our jobs, the, 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 the culture that we live in, our health battles, in the midst of today's challenges and frustrations and pains, can we find courage and strength and hope from being reminded that God saves his best for last. That's what the Bible declares to us, that, that we're going to have problems. It's what life, it's how God, uh, uh, the fall just didn't create challenges in life. It did. But God created life to be challenging. Right? I mean, that's what makes life, a life without challenge is a crummy life, right? So, I, um, yes, I think so. Uh, sometimes well, I, I hope you do. <laughs> sometimes I open up my, my, the beginning of the year at school. Now, I teach juniors and seniors, but I pretend that I'm teaching little children. I've got a principal, lower school principal here, so she can, <laughs> she can tell me whether this is not right or not. So um, if I were teaching little children, this is what I would do with the big children. And I would say, here's a story for you. Tell me at the end of the story what you think. And so once upon a time, there was a little girl, and she was beautiful. She was the most beautiful girl there ever was in the world. And she has a, a perfect mama and a perfect daddy, and they never had any problems. And then she went to school, and she made all A's, and she never even had to work. And then she went to uh, middle school, and then she went to upper school. Then she went to college and grad school, and she just never had to study and made all A's. And then she became whatever she wanted to be, and then she married a handsome man. And he was also really fine and good, and, and then they had really great babies and then they died and that's the end what do you think of miss sherry's story now somebody might say that's a great story but my bet is that an insightful little one would say i don't like that story 
Because they tell you the truth, don't they, Marquisha? They'll tell you the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't like that story. Why don't you like that story? It's boring. Mm-hmm. It's boring because there's no conflict. It's boring because there's no tension. It's boring because it's not real. Mm, it's not real. It's not real. It's, I love it's, that. I didn't think of that word. That's, it's not real. And, and mm-hmm. so it has no oomph. It has no power. Because power and strength aren't needed in that chick's life. She just cozes right along and why not? But it's, that's a boring story a child might say. I was thinking about it. It's not right. It's not real. We had a sad day Thursday night. Uh, We finished Downton Abbey. And uh, we were both just broken hearted (laughs) that that it was over. uh, we, we really were. We're the last people on earth to watch it. <laughs> yeah. But it was, oh, no. it was, oh. it was, I'm telling you, if you, if I did not want to watch it, I thought it was going to be crummy. What, what, I didn't have any, it was unfriggin' believable. I'm telling <laughs> we you. We loved it, it. it. I loved it. I loved it. It was unbelievable. But part, I just realized part of that story was that was the, the emptiness of these aristocrats when they didn't have any challenges. They were, they, their worst moments were when they were, they would get up in the morning, they would be served breakfast, they would eat their breakfast, they would get up, they would be dressed, and they would roam around the estate uh, <laughs> looking at stuff, and then they would go in and have dinner. They would dinner, talk about all their stuff. And then, they would, and then they would go to bed. And they were so empty. They were, there, there, there was nothing in their life. But when they faced challenges and they rose to the occasion and conquered them. Together, like it's together yes, and yeah, all that. It was, it was, I just thought about that was, anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that. I just, I just wanted to get us to realize that life is full of challenges. But in the midst of these challenges, real, painful, scary frustrating challenges. God is there and part of what God is doing is not just addressing your immediate. He is also at work with with the future in mind and he's preparing something that is beyond our wildest dreams. That's the testimony of the people in the Bible. I want you to, I just happened, just because the number, you could pick almost anybody in the scripture, so I just picked some of the ladies. Um, Rahab. Rahab had a life before and after Jericho fell. She had a challenging, problem-filled life. But Rahab would tell you, God saved his best in my life for last. You don't need anything. You don't need to be saved. There's nothing to save one from. Exactly. Ruth. I mean, what a problematic life. She, she married a fella and he died. They didn't have any, they couldn't have children. She married into a family that was of abject poverty. She winds up living in a, in a land where she is a hated foreigner. I mean, she had a problem-filled life. But if you said, Ruth, when you think about your life, big picture, what would you tell me? 
God saved his best for last. Abigail. Abigail was one of David's wives and for many, many years she was married to a horrible, selfish jerk of a husband. Now nobody in here would understand that, but um, Abigail would tell you my life was full of challenges and problems and pain. But guess what? God saved his best for last. And you could, Bathsheba, and I mean the list is endless. Bathsheba, she made some bad choices with David. Bad choices that brought great embarrassment and shame upon her. And then she had a child that died. She had problems. But Bathsheba would tell you if she was sitting here today, God saved his best for last. Esther, I could go on and on and on with these people. God saves his best for last. Listen to just some verses that I looked up. Matthew 7, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And Jesus ends this chapter with this story. There was a wise man who built a house uh, uh, on a rock overlooking the ocean. And you know what Jesus then tells us about that house? It was continually bashed by waves, by wind, by rain. Uh, it just, it, it was bashed and bashed and bashed by all these attacks of nature. But guess what? The end of the story is he's the guy that had the, the beachfront house that he could live in for the rest of his life. I think about in uh, what was that uh, in Matthew 13, a few chapters later. Uh, there's a farmer. He loves his farm. He loves being outside. He loves the soil. He loves taking seed and putting it in the ground and let, watching it grow and harvest. He loves what he does. But guess what the story tells us? His farm was constantly scorched by the sun. It was constantly attacked by birds. It was filled with rocks. But guess what the end of the story is? It produced an unbelievable, immeasurable harvest. Paul says in Romans 8, we know God is working all things for the good of those who love Him. Isaiah says in chapter 64, From before time began, no one has heard of or seen a God like you who is working from, on behalf of those who will wait on Him. One of my favorite verses in Amos chapter 9 says, There'll be a day when things are as God created them. There'll be a day when things are as God created them. And here's what it says. The plower will overtake the reaper and the gatherer will overtake the great treader. I'm not, I know that's old agricultural word, but what Amos is saying is there's going to be a day when what we're doing now is hindered by the, the sheer management of the past blessings. There are so many blessings that we haven't been able to deal with that we are hindered 
from doing that which we're trying to do now. Isn't that an incredible idea? Um, Psalm 27, David says, I remain confident of this one thing. I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. He says in Psalm 23, Surely God's goodness and mercy are pursuing me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Paul said of the Lord Jesus, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame, and is now sitting at the right hand of God his Father. Paul said in Philippians 1, I love living, but for me to die is gain. Why would somebody see death as a gain? Well, there's only one reason. He believed there was something better. He believed that God was saving his best for last. He went on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we want to be away from this body and to be with the Lord. Again, Paul was saying, I believe I'm actually living my life in such a way that reflects that God is saving his best for last. He goes on to say in Galatians, or actually said in Galatians 4 <laughs> earlier, he says, Be glad, O barren woman, you who have never had a child. Shout for joy, for more are the children of the desolate than of her who has had a husband. And that's an intense declaration. And there's a lot in there. But surely it at least declares in Paul's mind, Lady, you've had a difficult, sad, dream-crushed life. You can rejoice. You can find hope. You can experience joy because God has got a future for you that is better than you can imagine. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we don't grieve like people who do not have hope. He said in Titus 2, we wait for our blessed hope, the return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'll just use as my last example, the book of Revelation. If you read chapters 4, through 19. What, are the, what is that? 15 verses? 15 chapters? Give or take. You read those chapters. What you really see is the world as we know it has been devastated and destroyed by this cosmic battle and rebellion of the dark, evil powers that are against God, right? I mean, everything, the whole thing's destroyed. I know that we can get into some incredible studies and some incredible discussions of the seals and the bowls and the trumpets and the great whore and the whole, we could, we could, we could fight and argue and wrestle for years. But what's the point of the book of Revelation? What's the big message? The big message to me, you can't miss it. And that is that God 
takes a world that has been destroyed by evil, by darkness, by wickedness. And God takes it and he says this in Revelation 22. Then an angel, this is John talking, then an angel showed me a river of clear living water flowing from God's throne. And on both banks of this river stood the tree of life, and it bared its fruit monthly, and its leaves will be used for the healing of the nations, and there will be no more curse, for God's throne will be in the city, and his servants will be there with him, serving him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their heads, and they will reign with him forever. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is life change and transformation that takes place when we are confronted with truth. Um, I just wanted to remind us today of one of the most repeated, ongoing, significant truths that the Bible declares. And that is that we can find courage and strength and light and hope by reminding ourselves that God is saving the best for last. Now I know some of you are like my bride and we were sitting on the back porch yesterday or today, I forgot now. I, I know it was yesterday. And uh, she, I was talking to her a little bit about this and she said, well now Larry, are you talk, when you say that God is saving his best for last, are you thinking about in this life or in the next? And I said, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. Yes. I am thinking of both. And the reason I'm thinking of both is because I think that the Bible suggests both. The Bible illustrates both. I'm not declaring that every one of us are going to live the last two or three years of our lives with a hundred million dollars in the bank and bodies that look like uh, uh, stop, Angelina stop Jolie there, and Brad Pitt <laughs> or whoever it is and, uh, 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 and that everybody in our lives that we care about is also healthy, wealthy and wise. I'm not suggesting that. But I am declaring that which the Bible declares. And I'm trying to illustrate that which the Bible illustrates. And that is that the norm, the, the, the standard, the, the, the usual plan of God, if you just read about the lives of those that believed in Him and followed Him, they had problems, they had battles, they had failures, they, they had frustrations. But they live their lives on this earth before they get to heaven. And at the end of the journey, they look back and they go, I wouldn't swap 
my faith in Christ and my journey with Christ and his plans for my life, they were good. He saved his best for me. And guess what? There's something even better than that waiting on me on the other side. I just wanted us to be reminded of that today. You want to finish? End up for us? So I attended a funeral on Friday hmm. of a student. And that's a hard one. But they're all hard. Um, but a student at my school, and she was a believer. And the, the pastor who did the service had her Bible, did a remarkable thing, gave his message from her own words that had been written in, her, in, the, in the text of, of her Bible. And so um, the, one of the hymns that we sang was, Come Thou Fount. And it was chosen because it's a, a hymn, Come Thou Fount, of every blessing and it's a hymn that we sing in our chapel services so it's familiar to the students uh, that may not be churched people that had come to this funeral and I did pretty well until I got to the uh, fifth stanza which I'm sure I have sung sometime before this but could not remember I don't I didn't remember singing that fifth stanza I didn't remember the words and this is what it says oh that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face, clothed in, then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. That child mm -hmm. is standing by that river. And she might be standing by my dad, mm -hmm. saying, we knew the same people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The best is yet to come. I in no way, or we in no way, are trying to minimize the pain of no. a child dying. No, no. <laughs> or of a hurtful relationship, or scary finances, or health battles. I'm not... Paul says we grieve, but not like people who have no hope. He doesn't say we don't grieve. <laughs> if you poke struggle. me in the eye, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts me just like it hurts somebody else. It hurts. We have hurts. But one of the big messages of Scripture is to think about the best days of your life. The day you went off to college, the day you finished college, the day you got married, the day you took your first baby home from the hospital, the day you landed the job that you've been dreaming of for forever, whatever your best day, take your best five blessings and think about them. And then tell yourself, the best is yet to come. This, th today is not final. This doesn't define me. It is not that which will be true of me forever. And I would suggest for most of us in this life too, the best is yet to come. 
God is at work. He says He's at work orchestrating things for our good. So that means maybe right around the corner things are going to change. And I'm not trying to be Pollyannic or trite or flippant. I'm just trying to either a, the God of the universe is at work in my life and in yours or He's not. And if He's not, let's go out and get drunk. Because that's all we got. That we, but if He is, can I find hope and courage and light and strength and just reminding myself of that and you doing the same. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, who's going to come help me? Lawrence? Oh, you and David. Okay, great. We're going to offer you, if you would like, some wine and some bread. And we offer that to you on a weekly basis to give you a chance to be reminded of not only of what Jesus offered you, but what Jesus experienced. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus left heaven. He came to this earth. He humbled Himself by laying aside His glory, becoming a man and suffering and dying. But that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again and God placed him on the throne of heaven and gave him a name that is above all names. God saved his best for last for his son, just like he's saving his best for last for you and for me. And we eat and we drink not only to be reminded of what Jesus did to pay for our sins, but that that which God did for His Son, saving the best for last, He's also planning for us as well. So let's eat and let's drink.